Where's the love? Right here on this podcast. Welcome, Welcome to, love to Love Drop, 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 Drop. where your host and One Love Ambassadors, Charles and Diane, will share love, hope, and inspirational topics taken from their journey and world events. We will also include on-location recordings and special pop-up guests from cool places all around the world. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Love Drop Podcast. We're your hosts, Charles and Diane. Our episode today is storytelling. Back in the day, they were called griots. A griot was a West African traveling poet, musician, or storyteller. One who maintains the traditional and oral history of a tribe. Back in my day, they were called Grandma, great-grandma, uncle, great-uncle, mom, dad, cousins, aunties, family members that were our elders. They were our griots, and they were the storytellers. And what's happening in my family now, my oldest brother and myself, we have become the griots. With the death of our parents, uncles, aunts, Yeah, we have to pass on those stories that was related to us and a lot of the ones that we lived. We have to pass them on to our kids, our families, to make sure our ancestral inheritance don't die. We'll pass it on. Yep, Charles, I agree with you. These stories must go on and on and on. They must be told. How will the generations to come know who they really are if no one tells them? Tell our stories because only we can tell the stories as we have lived the stories. We need to record the griots of our families, if not for the stories, to preserve the sound of their voices because the griots need to be heard. The griots need to be felt. And so in those recordings, they can do just that. I recorded my grandmother and I recorded my grandmother and grandfather on my dad's side. I still have those video recordings and I reference them from time to time to just see them, to just hear them, to just keep their stories alive. I share them now with my grandchildren and one day they'll share them with their grandchildren, but they'll know the stories because we'll continue to tell the stories. And as we continue to tell these stories, some are very comical, humorous, but real. And then when you look deeper into the story, there's a lot of history there that has to to be 
passed on from generations to generations. Other members of the family will and must continue to pass these stories on. We can't let them die. We can't. We have a responsibility to our ancestors. We have a responsibility to our parents to pass their legacies on. You're right, Charles. We have to pass these stories on. And there's so many ways to do it. We can write about it. We can sing about it. We can paint about it. We can quilt about it. There's so many ways for us to share our stories. And it's so important that we protect our stories. It's not the responsibility of anyone, not school system, government system, or any outside system to protect our stories like we protect our stories. A lot of the children now can't even name their great, great grandparent. Not only could I name them, but I was fortunate enough to meet them, met them in stories because stories were told for dinners, for parties, for gatherings, stories were told. And those stories allowed me to see through the eyes of my ancestors that paved the way for me. It allowed me to see that I came from a family of entrepreneurs, a family of wealth building people, a family that persevered, a family that came together that were strong, strong family roots. And I only knew that because of the stories and experiences. And in talking with a lot of our heroes and sheroes of yesteryear, we find out that there's a lot of things not written in any school books, any historical books whatsoever. So it's up to us to pass these stories on. We must pass them on. A lot of my relatives, I didn't know all the ins and outs and the trials and tribulations that they went through until years later. And now that I do know it, it's up to me and my oldest brother to pass them on. We've made a lot of historical finds that we didn't know then, and it won't die with us. We're going to pass them on. That's right, Charles. We're going to pass them on. We're going to tell our story. So when I was clearly ready, I wrote a book. So even long after my time here, there'll be a book, there'll be pictures, there'll be videos, there'll be stories that I have told my children that they're telling their children that I am telling their children. Our ancestors told their stories through oral translation. There were griots that were given the family history and could name the names of family members from generation to generation to generation to generation. Some five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten generations deep all captured to memory because it was important that the stories and legacies lived on. People live on in our hearts, but in our stories, they live on as we speak about them. Their legends, their their accomplishments, who they were, live on in the stories that we tell. So we have an obligation to tell our story. Tell our story to the generations behind and not only tell the story, but get the story. So while people are still here, 
while your grills are still here, take the time to go and speak with them. Go to the nursing homes and speak with the people that are there. Everyone there has not checked out mentally. There are many that are right now sitting in nursing homes that could just tell you stories to blow your mind, tell you stories about our history. You will find more accurate tales of our narrative in nursing homes than you will in school books. So you got to get the story to tell the story, but it's our responsibility to tell the story. Yes, that is correct, Diane. And when you're talking with our seniors, the ones that are still there, you're talking with folks that contain a wealth of knowledge. A lot of them couldn't read years ago, but they can tell you the story because it was passed on to them. A lot of them didn't write, but they can tell you the story because it was told to them and they're giving it to you straight from their hearts. So you talk with our seniors, seniors in your family, seniors that are in assisted living homes. There are wealth of knowledge out there. We just have an obligation to take those stories and pass them on. Pass them on. And as you pass them on, we'll start connecting the dots from one story from a family to another and find out we're all connected. So we have to tell our story. So without further ado, we'd like to welcome to the Love Drop podcast our guest, Cookie Washington, telling her story as a fabric griot. Welcome, Cookie, to the Love Drops podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on Love Drop Podcast. My name is Cookie Washington. I live in Goose Creek, South Carolina. I'm a quilter. I've lived in the Charleston area for about 33 years. I have traveled extensively as a child in the, with the Air Force, um, but Charleston has been my home. I'm happy here. I have a quilting business here. I'm the mother of three beautiful granddaughters, and I'm excited to talk with you today, Diane. I'm a fourth-generation needleworker. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother were all master tailors and dressmakers. However, I am the first art quilter in the family. I came to art quilting after seeing the book Communion of the Spirits by Roland Freeman. It was such a powerful... He had taken pictures, traveled around the country for 30 years, and taken pictures of black quilters in every state in the union. And this was a revelation. These women were not making sunbonnet suits or boring little patchwork. They were making quilts that told stories. I've always felt like I am kind of a fabric griot, and I try very hard to tell the stories of our people, whether it's our myths, our lores, or our factual history in my work. And I'm very excited to continue to do that. I have been quilting now for about 25 years. I started sewing when I was about four years old. And it has been my passion. I did go to school to become a nurse and didn't do that for long. It worked out because now I'm a full-time caretaker to uh, an adult child. It still frees me up to be able to continue my quilting journey. And I'm very excited. Like I said, there are so many stories of our people that I believe we can tell in cloth. So I believe I'm putting my voice and my stories in my cloth tapestries. Thinking about my career, it's been really wonderful. 
one of the most important things that ever happened to me was I was chosen to be one of the 44 master quilters to create a quilt in celebration of Barack Obama's first inaugural. Um, It was seen in D.C. and then it traveled the world for like three years. It was such an honor. My quilt had two hands and they were gently caressing what I call the new leaf of hope. It was a circular quilt and on the inner circle Um, Above the hands, I had the word hope written in 44 languages um, in glass beads. I was very excited about that. Um, One of the other things, in 2012, I curated a mermaids and merwomen in black folklore celebrating the history and the mythology of black mermaids. So many of our people don't know that lore. We hear about The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, but mermaid lore predates the worship of Jesus Christ by about 2,000 years in Africa. Mermaids were worshipped as goddesses brought fertility or trouble or retrieved souls that had drowned in the ocean and helped them go on to the next part. And I want little girls like my granddaughters to know Black women's story in the world did not start enslaved. We were worshipped as goddesses and queens. So we are coming up. We are not coming up from slavery. We are coming down from being worshipped. And I think when you know that, you walk differently in the world. You move differently in the world. You realize that you have a, a pride of place in the world. And so I want my quilts, whether I'm curating a show or whether I'm creating a piece myself, I want that reflected out to the world. That's a great question. One of the um, first challenges I encountered um, in creating art quilts, I created a quilt and entered it into the only quilt show I've ever entered. It was a Black Madonna piece. I'd been researching Black goddesses and came upon the story of the Black Holy Family, which I did not know having been raised as a Baptist. So I created this quilt. I was very excited about it. And it was a a wall-size art quilt. It was uh, depicting the Black Holy Mother holding the baby Jesus. And it was so unpopular with the quilting guild that displayed it. They hung it in a garbage room. And... It had won a ribbon by an independent judge. I was so angry. Instead of getting defeated and just giving up, um, first of all, the quilt went to another exhibit here in Charleston, and it got sold for a mid-five figures, which was so great. But white quilters were not as welcoming as they should have been, and I, for some reason, was foolish enough to not think that quilting would have racism as a component as well. So I started, I went to the city of North Charleston and said, can we have an African-American quilt exhibit? And they said, yes, and it's grown every year, every year. We're on our 17th year. I usually have between 40 and 65 pieces in that show. It's African-American quilters from all over the country that come together. I pick a theme, and then we display these quilts for three months, and then the show travels. And that's very exciting, but it has been challenging. During COVID, one of the challenges was um, we were at kind of some sort of impasse or embargo with China. And now most of the quilting cottons that come to America are 
manufactured in China and we could not get supplies. One of my other challenges that I have overcome, I believe, with the help of my God is I am caring for my adult daughter who suffered a hypoxic brain injury 10 years ago. And I sometimes can't quilt for days because I have to take care of her or I have to quilt, you know, between midnight and three in the morning. But I get it done because it keeps me sane. It keeps me anchored and I love it. And it makes me refreshed to be able to go back and take care of her. It is an honor and a privilege to be able to care for my child because she's alive, praise God. And so the vibrancy of quilting, the stories that I can tell with my quilting um, helped me to overcome even my everyday life challenges. You know, I had a, recently had two family members pass away and the, one of the ways to process my grief was to create a quilt and just running your needle through the fabric. Every stitch becomes a prayer, a memory of the person that is gone and you feel inspired. So I feel very blessed in that way. I'm excited about getting to do this. This is an honor and a privilege for me. I was really honored and privileged that last March I was asked to be one of the first African-American artists to show at the historic Aiken Rhett House Museum. It was a, a retrospective of my work. I brought several pieces that I had made and loved and hung on to I did also borrow some pieces from uh, people who have them in their private collections. But it was, such a, it was such an honor. I brought two of the Madonna pieces that I loved. I brought, I think, three of the Black Mermaids. I cannot stop making Black Mermaids. And I thought it was really interesting to be in that space, in a plantation space where Black women were not honored or respected um, and were only essentially chattel slaves, you know, a little higher on the hierarchy in the house probably than animals. And then to be able to be there and present my work and to tell my African and African-American story was very humbling and I was very excited about it. We were even able to, at one point, show a brief film that was created called Gratitude that was about me. It was just, it was just wonderful. And I hope that the Aiken Rhett House continues to do that. We as African Americans need to be able to reclaim the good parts and the beautiful parts of our history in Charleston, South Carolina. Because so many, for so many years now, when you tour one of those historic houses, it's very moonlight and magnolias and oh, this was so people on the veranda sipping mint juleps and all that jazz. And I want people to know that maybe the white folks were out on the veranda sipping mint juleps, but people who look like me were picking cotton or standing in a field risking malaria, growing rice. We were doing even handwork then, you know, hand sewing work for the family. And so much of our work and our worth was not recognized. So that is what spurs me into continuing to do what I'm doing. Well, Diane, I'm really excited to talk about my upcoming exhibition. It will again be Black Mermaids. And again, I think this is so important because enslaved Africans, we carried across the Atlantic in the slave trade. We bought with us our beliefs and our practices where we honored our ancestral water deities. So this will be a celebration um, 
of the visual cultures and histories of water goddesses in the African diaspora. Um, African merfolk appeared in the millennia-old beliefs. Um, like I said, it predates the worship of Jesus Christ by more than 2,000 years. Um, Western Africa is ripe with mermaid stories. And with the increasing contact between Europeans and Africans, some of these legends combined with traditional European myths, and maybe that's how they got their mermaid stories. African water spirits evolved from a representation as a half-human, half-creature to being more popularly depicted as a half-fish, half-woman. One of my favorite mermaids, and I don't know if this will be one of my quilts, but the Dogon people... Um, believe in what is called the Nomo mermaids. They believe that they came from the dog star Cirrus, and they are shapeshifters. They can be green and look like monsters. They can take on a human form. They can take on a mermaid form. You will know them if you can see that they have a forked tongue. And if they want to kill you, they lither out their forked tongue and suck your lungs out through your nose and kill you. They can be powerful spirits for good or for evil. The other mermaids, like Yimaya, she is a Yoruba Orisha, which means goddess, who rules over the ocean, and she is the mother of all living things. The story is, is that Yimaya was greatly pregnant, and one of the mer people made her angry, and she swam around so quickly in the water, creating a water spout, and then she flung her body onto the sand, and her womb burst forth, and all the living creatures came out, people from every walk of life came out of her womb and that's how we got different colors of people. She gives, she gave birth to the sun, the moon, and the stars. She is protective and nurturing. We would call on Yimaya if we are having a problem with our fertility. We would do worship to her. She is also synchronized with Mother Mary. So that myth worked its way into the Catholic religion. She's often pictured with dark, dark brown skin. She wears cowrie shells or pearls around her neck. And she often is seen with a flowing blue dress. Mamiwata is is the called the mother of water. That's what Mamiwata means, and she is one of the older matriarchal religious symbols that dominates Africa and has for thousands of years. Mamiwata is depicted sometimes as a vain person with a mirror and um, jewelry or whatever, but she is also a snake charmer, a mermaid, and Mamiwata is one of the mermaids that you would call on to bring wealth and healing to those who follow her. These water spirits, we have to remember, are highly respected and feared. They represent mystery, sacred knowledge, and protection throughout Africa, the Caribbean, as well as the Americas. And I would like to point out that Christopher Columbus, in his journey to explore the New World, claims that he saw mermaids on his journey. He wrote in his daily log or whatever, that he did not think that the mermaids were as attractive as he had thought they would be. Well, I've seen pictures of Christopher Columbus, and he wasn't that great looking either. John Henry Hudson also said not only did he see mermaids, but that he brought them on board and his crew played with them. I think that's important to know that it's not just an African legend, that it moved out 
and that other people knew of mermaids and black mermaids long before Hans Christian Andersen came on the scene and wrote that story. Our mermaid exhibit will open on May the 26th. It will be at the City Gallery at Waterfront Park at number 31 Prealo Street in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. There should be a week's worth of celebration, including getting to have your picture taken with a black mermaid uh, probably out by the Pineapple Fountain. I would encourage everyone to come. At that same time, Disney will have released their Little Mermaid movie, but I don't want people to just think that mermaids were passive, pretty things that wanted to fall in love with men and were willing to give up their life in the sea, that these are goddesses that should be worshipped and honored and respected, and we should learn more about that lore. So I hope everyone will come out and see the show. I think it will be wonderful. There should be about a hundred pieces of art. The City Gallery sits on the only thing that could be almost described as a hill in Charleston and overlooks Charleston Harbor, where slave ships sailed past down on their way to the wharf, where about 40 to 60 percent of Africans who were enslaved came to the Americas. Charleston is called our Ellis Island. And so think of all the mermaid stories and mermaids that probably follow those enslaved ones to the Americas, so to America. I'm very excited also because the call for entry has just gone out for quilters from around the country, African-American quilters from around the country, to submit their mermaid piece to the show. So we will have quilts from all over. The last time I did a mermaid show, we had quilters from as far away as Oregon, California, and even a couple from Canada snuck in. And there are African-American men and African-American women and Afro-Cubans and Afro-Puerto Ricans and uh, Bayesians and Jamaicans who are all going to participate in the show. And so it will be such a delight and such eye candy for you to get here and see this show. And so I would invite everybody to come May 26th through July 9th. So if you're coming to Charleston for your family reunion in July, as so many of us do, um, please come to the City Gallery at Waterfront Park. Diane, I'm excited. I will be creating at least two new mermaid works um, of my own that will be in the show. So I am very happy and looking forward to it. I've already started my sketching and pulling my fabric and... Uh, you know, I like a little bead and a little cowrie shell now and then. Um, so it's, and it's such a joyous, for me, celebration of being able to honor, especially our divine feminine ancestors, when I do this work and create these pieces. So I will absolutely be working feverishly and happily until the show opens. A message of inspiration I would like to leave everybody is, to your own self be true. Find your creative spirit and work with it. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be beautiful, but it should be an expression of you. I believe when we are creating, whether we're drawing or singing or painting or quilting or throwing a clay pot, we are give, using our, our gifts that were given to us by the divine creator, and we should celebrate that. We also should remember that during this very challenging time in our nation's history and story, the strongest steel goes through the hottest fire, and we are absolutely being forged in very hot fires right now, but we will overcome and we will be overjoyed on the other side. You know, if you're going through hell, keep going. 
you know, get a support system, look at art, feel good every day that you can, tell yourself how much you love yourself. As women, we need to remember that we are valuable, we are important, we are the cradle of the universe, and we need to honor that and allow make other people honor that and respect us too. I would like, if anyone is interested, to look me up. My website is cookiesewsquilts.com, and there you'll see some pictures of past works of mine, and I hope to see you in May, June, or July in Charleston. You can also reach me at my email address, cookiesews1960 at gmail.com. Diane and Charles, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to talk with you on the Love Drops podcast. I feel the love, I feel supported, and I know that your listeners are blessed by each and every time you're on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Stay strong, and I hope to see you in Charleston in May. Never a second will I waste. Never an opportunity to taste the sweetness of Thank you for tuning in to the Love Drops Podcast. Be sure to follow this podcast and share the love with everyone you know. Until next time. This is Charles and Diane signing off. One love. Love